Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Roberto Olivardia. He's a clinical psychologist and clinical instructor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. He maintains a private psychotherapy practice in Lexington, Massachusetts, where he specializes in the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, executive functioning issues, and issues that face students with learning differences. He also specializes in the treatment of body dysmorphic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and in the treatment of eating disorders in boys and men. He's the co-author of Adonis Complex, How to Identify, Treat, and Prevent Body Obsession in Men and Boys. And it's just such a great pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And so when I was doing a little bit of research on your work, what really struck out to me or struck or struck me rather. Uh, so first of all, number one, I'm a CBT therapist, so which is why I love your work so much. Uh, and then on top of that, I have uh, muscle dysmorphia. So uh, <laughs> right, the combination <laughs> of the two. So when I was looking into your work, uh, what I appreciated is the what I appreciated about it was the breadth of it, and also the fact that you use clinical examples and you talk about some of the things that people go through, some of the thought patterns. So first, can we get into before we even because I want to talk about steroids use as well. But can we get into the Adonis complex? So where does that name stem from? And what are the manifestations you normally see about it? Sure. So when we came, when the book was written in 2000, so it's hard to believe that it was 23 years ago. And, and the book, because we talk about all the different manifestations of body image issues. So all of the things typically that has been researched and looked at with women, we, and I have for 30 years have been interested in looking with boys and men. So that would include eating disorders like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, muscle dysmorphia, which is a term actually that we coined in 96, which is a subtype of body dysmorphic disorder where um, that predominantly affects men who are uh, preoccupied with their mus muscle size and muscularity. Uh, and we look at anabolic steroid use, cosmetic surgery in men, and boys and this sort of sociocultural impact of what boys and men are exposed to in terms of media imagery. And when we were thinking about the title, we were looking for something that kind of encompassed all of that. And I remember we were first thinking of it, like Superman syndrome. And we're like, mm -hmm. no, it's not really about. And then we thought, well, Adonis, which is the Greek mythological character that was half man, half God, who represented the ideal and masculine beauty, who was the envy of all the men and the object of desire for the women. And we thought that's a good name. So Adonis complex is not a diagnosis. It's not a psychiatric diagnosis, sort of a popular term, but one that we use to encompass all of these other conditions and issues that we see in boys and men. Yeah. And then, so when we're thinking about Adonis, we tend to think of, uh, so somebody who's, let's say, uh, overly, I'm going to just use uh, kind of colloquial terms, like overly brolic, right? Like somebody who yeah. has a perfect, who almost looks like they have a perfect physique. The rock. The rock, right. Sure. So, oh, so how mm -hmm. does it, uh, so how does it happen that you have somebody that virtually resembles an Adonis, let's say, you know, just more so objectively, more or less. I mean, it's kind of hard to say for sure, but we can say, you know, it kind of, uh, it gets, it does maybe not hits the mark perfectly, but it's kind of there, right? So how do yeah. you have a person who virtually resembles that and still doesn't see themselves as that, right? How is there such a disconnect between, let's say, the person that people would see outside or the people that, let's say, the external, right, that people would see and mm -hmm. then the kind of internal self-image that they have? Because oftentimes when we think of perception, we think it's more or less objective, right? But yet with body dysmorphia right. and muscle dysmorphia, that's not actually the case. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So when we think about, so appearance is a specific term that represents very concrete objective data about how we look. I have brown hair, I'm five foot 11. This is objective data. There's no subjectivity around it. We can, I can step on a scale and tell you how much I weigh. You can measure me to see how tall I am. Whereas body image is not necessarily objective. So body image is a kind of mental representation or picture that somebody has of their appearance in their mind. Now, that could be affected and impacted by a lot of things. Now, sometimes one's body image is very close to their appearance. Lots of times it isn't because it's now also intersecting someone's attitudes, someone's expectations, um, somebody's, uh, you know, might see what you and I see, but they might not feel the way that we feel about it. So it's an emotional component to body image. Um, and body image is also what we're attending to. So in the case of, let's say, body dysmorphic disorder, that if somebody is concerned about their nose, so that could be with BDD, people have preoccupations with any and all kind of body parts. So someone who, let's say, has BDD around their nose, they think their nose looks ugly and they're mirror checking 50 to 100 times a day. They're obsessed with it. When they walk into a room, their image in their mind of what people are looking at of them is their nose their body image in a sense becomes their nose. Like it's almost mm -hmm. like it becomes disembodied from everything else. And a lot of patients I work with with BDD say, I really don't know kind of what I look like anymore because I'm, it, it's, there's such a distortion of how they're even relating to their body. So now if you imagine somebody, let's say, you know, with muscle dysmorphia, um, a guy who could be objectively who you and I would look at and think that's a, a fit guy, that's a muscular guy. But if that individual, let's say, is comparing themselves to people who are bigger, to men who are stronger, who are bigger, if they are thinking every time they walk into a room, everyone here thinks I'm scrawny, I'm puny, um, they don't think I'm strong. Um, and if a person themselves is, let's say, struggling with anxiety, with low self-esteem, with insecurities, that then in a way kind of manifest, you know, more externally. Um, if somebody is checking themselves in the mirror constantly and what they're looking at is through the lens of what could be better all the time, as opposed mm -hmm. to what is, then the picture literally in their mind kind of is just different. And in terms of how we relate to them. And I always tell my patients with BDD, Nobody is scrutinizing your appearance to the degree that you are. That just doesn't. Now, that's not to say people aren't noticing our appearance, certainly, or people sometimes are not going to be critical or judgmental of it. But with BDD, nobody is scrutinizing, analyzing every little thing. And with patients with BDD, it could be the difference where they feel their bicep looks a little tighter today than yesterday. And the assumption is that other people are going to notice that when, when they're not. So now you start to see this real distortion of how people are literally seeing themselves um, than other people. And, and sometimes, and there's a spectrum. I mean, you have people that kind of see in a sense, the same thing that you do, but they just feel differently. They could be like, no, but that looks ugly. Mm -hmm. And, and then other times people are just not seeing what you're seeing. You know, like I've worked with patients who 
think that their hair is thinning and they have a full head of hair. They think that they have terrible skin on their face when they have very smooth skin. It's just, there could be a real disparity. Would it be, I'm sorry, just one question, just to clarify. So would it be fair to say that it's more so, more or less so bi-directional, where on the one hand, you have somebody who maybe notices an imperfection, and then because they keep focusing and focusing and focusing on it, now they're starting, starting to notice more and more imperfections about that imperfections. So it looks exaggerated because they're seeing the sort of minute details that maybe they didn't see, let's say yesterday or a week ago and whatnot, and maybe other people aren't seeing as well. So it's like, as you become more and more aware of it, now it becomes this thing that's uglier and uglier by the day. Would that be so it could be that and then other times it doesn't even almost like start with an actual imperfection or flaw so with bdd sometimes it could be some perceived flaw that somebody's like you said they're they're thinking about it all the time they're relating to it all the time so now it's almost like having a bigger presence in their mind and other times there isn't a flaw they just feel it you know to be and bdd is one of those things that it's almost i i've Often when I work with someone, you'll often see issues of, you know, anxiety and depression. You could see trauma. You see other stuff of which our body image is also a reflection sometimes of, of all of those things as well. Gotcha. Hmm. Uh, uh, to some degree, uh, could an argument be made that by maybe that, that a particular individual who has BDD uh, or rather, it doesn't have BDD. I, I suppose I'm looking for a distinction here. Uh, someone who may loop their thoughts around a uh, imperfection or perceived imperfection that might actually uh, motivate them to take average by sort of uh, take action rather by sort of leveraging, like making this aspect of themselves seem uh, painful. Uh, or rather something displeasing to themselves and then sort of try to leverage that into sort of uh, taking action because it's so it becomes so displeasing. Um, I, I suppose what would be um, the the toxic uh, or rather what is the distinction between I suppose the toxic version of that that would mm. be associated with BDD versus I suppose maybe a uh, uh, quote unquote healthier version of that for somebody yeah. to, progress. to progress, progress yeah and grow yeah. yeah absolutely because that you know and and that's the thing with with this is there's nothing wrong with wanting to optimize our appearance working out um, you know wanting to have good skin or you know dress nicely or all of those things it's um with with BDD where it gets sort of really over the line is that someone's worth and value as a person gets almost completely wrapped up into the their appearance. So it doesn't matter how smart they are, how personable they are. It doesn't, even people around them who love them and accept them, who say you look good, it almost like doesn't matter. It feels as if everything gets wrapped up into that. Whereas in kind of normal mental health, like you could have people that want to drop 15 pounds, want to gain five pounds of muscle, want to do something, but, and it's, it's bothersome enough that it moves them into action and they're motivated, but they don't feel like their whole sense of self is predicated on that. You know, it's something that bothers them, but they don't feel like I am nothing unless this thing is fixed, you know, that it becomes a sort of obsession. But in terms of Anytime with body image where we start to see the red flags, I think of it in these various categories. So one is how much is somebody's self-esteem 
wrapped ar around that. So it's something like, hey, here's this thing I'd like to change about my appearance that I don't really like versus this is the thing I have to change. And if I don't change, nobody will love me. I'll never get a job. I, I can't live. I mean, BDD has a one of the highest suicide rates of any psychiatric disorder. So this gets to a point where people literally feel they cannot live with them looking the way they perceive themselves to look. Um, two is how much is the pursuit of that improvement in your appearance getting in the way of areas of life functioning, your social life, your occupational life, um, your health, sleep, the eating, things like that. So if you're going to the gym every day for an hour after work, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're working out four to five hours a day and that's getting, you know, you aren't hanging out with your friends or your family or right. attending to your parental duties, you're missing work because you're stuck at the gym. That's, you know, a different issue. Certainly, if you're engaging in any unhealthy practices, eating disorders, which are common in particularly men with muscle dysmorphia, anabolic steroid use, which we can talk about, compulsive exercise to the degree that I work with men who, because they're working out four or five hours a day, they're in a lot of pain. And mm -hmm. then it's, you know, then you start seeing like taking pain medication to deal with the pain. And then it can develop into things like an opiate addiction um, because of the reliance on pain medication that's fueled by this compulsive behavior. Um, and then also in terms of just the, the level of insight, you know, that people have around, you know, kind of putting this in perspective that what is the real goal at the end of the day? Because when I ask people, okay, what is it that you're, so let's say if you have the build that you're looking for, what's the currency of that for you? And, you know, for some people, it's like, I just want to look good. Okay. Well, what is looking good? Do? Okay. It might make me more viable in relationships or it might, um, I want to be healthier. And so we try to get to what is the value behind it and recognizing that that's one way, you know, like certainly if you want to be seen as more attractive, but then what are other ways as well that make somebody appealing and attractive? Um, or if I'm working with someone who's like, oh, I want to be healthy. And then we realize, but if you're engaging now in activities that are really going against your health, you're not executing the value. Like there's something that starts to get twisted in a sense with the, that logic. Um, so we sort of look at all those things and then the distortions of how much of a disparity is there between how people see themselves and how most people would see them. You know, again, we all have our subjectivity of things, but it becomes, especially with BDD, it becomes very clear, like there's a real disparity between how you're seeing yourself and how I or everybody else sees you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that you frame it in terms of capital, because I mean, I don't know if uh, this holds for you, but this definitely happened with me. So I started heavily working out. I think it was about 20 in the beginning of 2014. And I think at the time when all of us started working out, we were thinking, oh, my God, girls are going to love us. We're going to get hit on all the time. <laughs> and here we are about 10 years later and none of that's happened. So and it's, it's so there's this meme that goes around where it's uh, like it's a guy and he's like, you know, what I think is going to happen. And the thinking is it's a bunch of girls around them and they're like, oh, my God, you look so good. And then it's like <laughs> at the bottom, what really 
really happens and it's just a bunch of guys like oh bro, oh, bro yeah you look so great and that's actually legitimately what happens you go you go to the gym and it's usually a bunch of guys complimenting you so again in yeah. terms of capital the question really is how much does this actually do for you so i think a lot of guys and i, I obviously would include myself in all of this is that we have a very myopic view of what we think women tend to want not to say that women don't like muscles but i think we definitely overvalue them more so than women do so with that said what happens is when we kind of see each other you know we're great at supporting each other and it's not to say that women aren't supportive it's just that they won't don't support that necessarily they might appreciate it it might be maybe somewhat of a bonus for some women it might definitely be a necessity but i would argue in terms of what we think where there's going to be this plethora of women now chasing us that's not at all the case so it's sort of like so what would you do then when the client actually sees that discrepancy and they think oh my god i've been working out for 10 years and like you know i've been looking for a long-term serious relationship i still haven't really found it if anything maybe i'm even repulsive to some women because they think i'm too self-absorbed mm -hmm. right now how do you start to manage that so you're you you're nailing something that's so important because a study that i did many years ago um where we looked at um men and had men assess what their ideal body type would be so by a click of a mouse on this computer program we developed they can alter the fat content and the muscle content of a body and we had them choose what's their ideal we actually measured their height weight and body fat so we knew what their actual body composition was and these were all straight guys that what do you feel that women prefer in a male body and then we actually assessed women and asked them to pick what their ideal male body was now part of this just to give you a little historical context that this was inspired by studies done years ago with women where called figure rating scales where they would have from a very thin you know where do you see yourself what do you what's your ideal what do you think men prefer and almost universally you'll see that women prefer an image that's very thin almost unhealthily thin mm. they think men prefer a thinner ideal than men in fact prefer mm -hmm. um and they saw themselves as as having more weight as fatter than they truly were and when these studies were done with men they found oh some men preferred a thinner ideal some a heavier ideal so we kind of average it out and they're satisfied with the way they look well of course what those studies neglected was the role of muscularity it's not just body fat in male body image the role of muscle plays a big factor most men don't care if they're overweight they care more if they're over fat, you know? Mm. So like most bodybuilders are not over, are, are overweight, but have low body fat percentage. So with this, what was fascinating is one of the things that I incorrectly predicted was that men would pre um, prefer an ideal body that was similar to what they think women prefer in men. And we found out, well, first of all, that men preferred themselves to be, or they thought they were, slightly fatter but the bigger factor was they thought they were much less muscular than they truly were they thought women preferred a much more muscular ideal like significantly more muscular than women in fact preferred but the funny thing was the thing that predicted how muscular a guy wanted to be was how muscular he thought the average guy was which suggested that there was something more important about being bigger than the other guys in the room then there was even about attracting other women mm. and studies similarly with women have found this to be so there's almost this kind of i mean what you said is so 
um, accurate, this idea of like, okay, what is it about the admiration perhaps of other men? Now, someone might argue, well, if you're the biggest guy in the room, maybe then you have your choice of options of women, but then we would have seen a significant difference of, of men who preferred a body that was similar to what women prefer. And their idea was beyond what they even thought women preferred. And to your point, when I work with guys, I mean, I'll never forget in the very first research study I did, this is in 96, um, of a man, he had serious muscle dysmorphia. And this is again, when we hadn't even coined that term yet, he was 27, very bright guy. Um, he was on stacking many different kinds of steroids, working out five, six hours a day. He had wow. cystic acne because of the steroids. He was impotent. Um, his One of his kidneys was at risk wow. of failing because of all he was doing to his body. And I, and he was obsessed with it, getting big. And I said, what, what for you is this all for? And he was serious and he said to to get chicks like to be mm. attracted attractive to women and it was one of those moments that it was a learning experience for me of like how distorted this thinking could be and i said okay but you understand you're at the gym like all day long like you like you're telling me that you have erectile dysfunction because of the steroids that you're taking right you are in so much pain from working out where and when are you going to be even meeting people? Like, where are you putting yourself in spaces where you're even? And he said that sometimes the feedback would be that he either was repulsive looking because he was almost like abnormally big, that women actually found it him threatening, even though he was the sweetest guy. But Mm. it was the image he was projecting was actually almost a more intimidating, threatening, you know, image in a way that women you know, women, unfortunately, have to be very, very aware of their safety because of the violence that is perpetrated on women. So that's like, and then, and I, and he struggled with a lot of social anxiety and and, uh, issues of insecurity. And this is what, and I said, well, that's not really being fulfilled by this, but in a way, you know, as he started doing, you know, work, um, looked at how for him, the bodybuilder was supposed to kind of compensate for a lot of like issues of social anxiety and lack of assertiveness that somehow if he just looked a certain way that they, people would just come flocking to him in, in some ways and and to your notion a lot of women found him to be very like self-absorbed and narcissistic and he wasn't a narcissist like he was actually again a very very nice guy but it really showed to me wow this guy really thinks this is serving that value when it's the total opposite. It's almost like it's definitely not happening. Like he was 27, he hadn't been in a relationship in his life because Mm. he was so consumed with this. Wow, and I just had a major realization, man. Holy shit, like I never even thought about it. So 10 years, and I'm even telling you guys the story that like, yeah, it's mostly guys who find this appealing. And then yet still in my mind, I think in the back of my mind, I said, well, maybe if I just keep doing this somewhere down the line, it's mostly gonna be women. And yet somehow or other, I'm still doing this thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be that um, the perceive. So, of course, uh, men might have it in their minds that you know, uh, by being bigger than the other guy, you'll get the status, right? This big status right. boost by yeah. being bigger. However, um, because they're constantly trying to strive for more, 
seeking to be bigger or better without ever really realizing where they're at currently or that they're just enough as they are now, their actual perceived status versus versus like what they think is the ideal that they're reaching for is, is lower. Therefore they don't display behaviors that are actually of like a higher status male or, you know, uh, Whatever, essentially. Or you can even add, or or you can even add to that, or even aware of what they're actually pursuing, which is what I think my issue was. Now realizing it, like, wait, what am I actually pursuing? Is it sort of more intimacy with women, or even attraction, or is it actually to get a bunch of guys telling me I look great at the gym? Very quickly. Uh, Yeah. Apologies, sorry. Very quickly. Yeah, (laughs) they they think that by reaching some uh, some end goal, they'll be complete. And right. then when they're complete, they'll get the things they want, as opposed to like like you mentioned in your example, doctor, that the that the patient uh, he he's twenty seven, he had never been in a relationship, spending however many hours at the gym when he could have allocated some time to perhaps meeting women in his particular case. Exactly, and and that's where a lot of times with with these kind of behaviors, it's the it's almost like kind of putting all your eggs in one basket. Like this is the one thing when it's not only all of the issues and that come along with that, but what are you not working on in that whole process? You know, that assertiveness, confidence, you know, that, that doesn't come like our our confidence and our whole self-esteem cannot come from our appearance because the one thing I can Mm -hmm. guarantee is going to change in your life is your body is going to change. It's what you can do at 20 is going to be different than what you do at 40 is different than 60 is different. And that's not to say like, we are all frail beings, you know, at 60, like you can still be strong, but it's just different. You know, your appearance is going to change. So, you know, what, what people are really responding to what they really want. And this is the true, true. Also, when I work with folks with eating disorders is, is what is really the end game is if you want to feel confident, but, you have wrapped up like, okay, the only way to feel confident is by having a certain body. And, and then, like you said, like, then I'm done. Then the job is done and this confidence is granted to me. It's like, that's not how it works. In fact, sometimes you'll, what you'll often see is a disparity. It gets even more of a disparity. The closer somebody is to their quote unquote goal, the goalpost keeps moving, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that we see with something like anorexia nervosa that women who are like, okay, if I just lose 10 more pounds then I'll be good. And then when they lose 10 more pounds, their body image is actually worse because Mm -hmm. now it's like, wait a minute, I'm not feeling what I thought I was going to feel. Maybe I just need to do more. And with the guys with muscle dysmorphia, it's just 10 more pounds of muscle or, or more, 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 more. And this idea that they're kind of chasing something when the thing that they're really looking for it, it, it's just not down that path. It's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, you peel the curtain back and it's some small guy. It's not this big, you know, monstrous, you know, guy that realizing, oh, I needed to be working on other things, you know, in addition that if I can build my body, that's great. If that gives me some sense of empowerment and satisfaction, but that can't be the most important thing because, okay, now you're in front of somebody and you're talking to them if you don't know how to talk to people, if you don't have confidence, your body can only take you so far in that way. Mm. But, you know, I've also met people um, who've thought in the in terms of like, I'll just use a steroid use, for example, and I really do not want to get into this topic. So the yeah. thinking was, well, if I use steroids and I look a certain way, maybe I won't have to work as hard socially. Right. Yes. Yeah. That That's the thinking. And the truth is, is 
what even with just general body image research looks at with attractiveness, that studies show that attractive people, that there are some perks that people who are attractive might get. They might, they're more often to be helped, let's say, like there were studies that had like a woman who dropped her bag of groceries and the mm -hmm. women who were more attractive were more likely to have a man help her put her groceries together. Um, sometimes it, you know, it's certainly in certain fields and industries, it might help more, you know, than others. But what studies show is on the long term, it not only doesn't help, but sometimes could have an inverse effect. So for example, women who are seen as very attractive are also unfortunately seen as less intelligent sometimes and perceived that way. Like this idea that it's almost too threatening for a woman to be both attractive and smart, you know, in some ways that like yeah. culturally it's like, oh, no, 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 we can't have it that way. And with men, I mean, what is the perception of muscled guys who is that they're not so bright, you know, no meatheads. right. Meatheads. And, and, you know, that's not true for, I mean, I work with lots of men. I know people who are into that, those communities who are super smart, you know, people, so it can sometimes it's like, okay, just because somebody objectively sees you as attractive, there's also a difference. And I tell my patients between being seen as attractive and someone being attracted to you. Mm. And if you think about like, there are people that we can all think about, or your audience can think about is, you know, maybe a celebrity that you find attractive, but would you want to be in a relationship with them? Would you be attracted to them? Mm. Like there are lots of people I can think of that are like, I think are just beautiful people. But what I, uh, you know, there are other characteristics of there that would have me really be attracted to them as like in a relationship. No, you know, like, um, and then vice versa. Like we also know with relationships that we also become more attracted to people as we know them based on characteristics. And, and, you know, as I say to my patients, if you're looking for, you know, a one night stand, well then yeah, appearance is going to play a larger value. If you're just looking to just hook up with someone, a one and done deal, that's it. If you're looking for real intimacy, which I can tell most of my patients, that's what they're looking for. They're really seeking a sense of connection and intimacy. It's going to take a lot more than building a body and getting so wrapped up into it that you're neglecting all of these other things. So with steroids, the truth is steroids work and the fact that you can build muscle there are a lot of consequences to it, um, medically, psychologically. Um, and with the guys I work with, some of them are like, I don't, if this shaves off 30 years of my life, so be it. I mean, that's the attitude and the philosophy that they have because they feel that the capital of it is so high. And meanwhile, they get stuck in, again, these vortexes that they're not realizing they're not getting close to where they want to really go and, and what they really want to do. And then as they get older and there is damage done to their body, then of course, I mean, the, that's where people can get very dark and very suicidal because now if you can't even work out because your body is failing you in some mm -hmm. ways, and that was the one thing that held your sense of self together, that's where it can get really bad. How do you treat someone like that? Like, uh, how do you help them through uh, maybe maybe giving up steroids or uh, ha having a healthy relationship to their body? It really starts, I usually like to have the discussion first of, you know, what that question of what for you, what's the end of the, what's the end goal here? Sure. Because 
it's not for me to say, oh, you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that. You know, if you if you're deciding that that's kind of how you want to live your life and that's really what your value is, I can't tell you what your value needs to be. But what I'm guessing is that what you're trying to achieve here, that there's it's not really aligned, you know, that that you're the value you're trying to achieve is not aligned with where you're actually going. And so if somebody's saying, I'm looking for status, I'm looking for acceptance, I'm looking for respect, I'm looking to just be liked, to be loved. I mean, a lot of, particularly with steroid users, with men with muscle dysmorphia, a number of them were bullied as kids, um, might have um, were might have been like the skinny kid when they were growing up. So their body image was negative, not because they were overweight, some of them, that might be the case, but unlike um, women where, you know, being overweight, you know, as a woman, uh, it leads, can lead to social exclusion and things like that for boys. It's actually guys who are underweight who yeah. can have almost more negative body image because at least like the bigger kids, and I'm not saying the kids that are overweight don't get picked on and bullied. And, but there's at least some sense of, for men, like taking up space is sort of rewarded. You know, if you're the big kid and you're on the football team, you're rewarded, you know, and feared for, for that. And feared, exactly, in some way. You're the skinny kid. You're the kid that's the late bloomer. Well, yeah. that's a whole different, you know, game in, in some ways. And and how you sort of um assimilate that. So sometimes a lot of these men are dealing with kind of these haunts from the past, you know, just really dealing and trying to repair um a lot of stuff in the past you know that they're really trying to sort of deal with so i say okay if you're looking for to be more assertive to be more respected to me we can that's we can absolutely work on that but mm -hmm. i want to be clear that what you're doing now you know that's not achieving that you know maybe like a tiny bit of it in terms of going to the gym working out feeling good about your body your sense of function and power Sure, that's a contributing factor to it. But all of that other stuff that's dominating your life, that's not executing that value. So if we both we both can agree that those are the values you're looking for. And then that's where people are more on board. Because I think what happens is if the conversation becomes, oh my gosh, you're working out six hours a day. That's crazy. That's irrational. Like you shouldn't be doing that. We need to decrease that. That's not going to, get anywhere because then mm -hmm. we're kind of missing the point. But if I understand that there's someone who's doing that to get something that all of us want, we all want to be respected. We all want, then there's now a universality of like, no, you're not quote unquote crazy or what you're looking for is not crazy and irrational. Unfortunately, whether you've been told or again, we live in a certain culture that says certain things or whatever messaging has told you that this is the way to get it. That's the incorrect message. But what you're looking for, I'm on board with in, in that way. And a lot of times the guys I see, they come to me um, when, you know, the adults, uh, I, the good, well, the good and bad, uh, the good part is that I see a lot of young people, which on one hand is unfortunate that they're dealing with it so young, but the good part is that they're getting help like right away. Right. Um, whereas years ago, it would be, men like, you know, 20s, 30s who had been dealing with it already for a decade, you know, 15 years um, is, is saying that, but it's going to be 
scary at times because it means we're kind of going to pull back sort of the the curtain that this isn't the holy grail and it means we're going to have to deal with some of this other tough stuff your sense of self identity if there is trauma you know all of these things but i we can get you to that place of executing you know that value a lot of times it's guys who come in when they've unfortunately suffered some consequences already they've lost jobs they've no relationship has ever worked for them you know mm -hmm. and then they start thinking i don't think this is really working you know for me or i mean during the pandemic i mean where gyms were closed for example like that really yeah. made it difficult for a lot of men who have muscle dysmorphia can't get to the gym and they were like oh my gosh like i don't what's going to happen to my muscle mass and and really freaking out you know about that so then they can be on board with it but there's it's not easy you know it doesn't mean it's hard to kind of give give it up because you feel like you're giving away your chance of your ticket to power and respect and all of that and so it's starting to address all those thoughts it's teaching them assertiveness skills it's dealing with all of those issues of the past and the narratives that people have told themselves it's education and i mean when we wrote adonis complex that was the days before social media and all of that i mean now a lot of times it's just the first couple sessions could be what is correct information versus misinformation about steroids about did certain diets around all of these things that people come in with. And they're like, oh yeah, I saw on TikTok this person who said steroids are actually good for your health or something like that. I'm like, yeah, who who is this person? And you know, and I'm like, that there's no credential there. What they're saying is not true. Or the like someone like the liver king, you know, if you're familiar with liver king. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and of course he, you know, it was he was exposed to doing steroids. Oh, I was shocked not like i mean mm. come on like yeah. but i and i feel and i've had i have a son who's 18 and we've had a lot of these conversations because he's a strong kid he's a he is a power he's in the powerlifting club like in his college wow. like he's he's um so we've had a lot of these discussions you know ironically you know having a dad that wrote the adonis complex and here's he's like this muscular kid and super strong but he does it very healthily and has a good relationship with it. And when we've gone, but sometimes even the content he's growing up at this time, I didn't grow up with social media, which I'm glad about. Um, but we've had to have talks of like, no, you have to get like the right data, which he generally gets. And he's very, he's good with that. But, you know, some people are very alluring characters on social media. Yeah. And it also feels like going back to uh, the CBT perspective and just dealing with patients. I mean, it also feels like you're taking away a point of safety for them. So when you're challenging yes. distorted thoughts, like I could tell you from my perspective, I know for Alan, uh, when he works out, I mean, we've talked about this before. I hope it's okay that I say this. Uh, so Alan has a fear of like becoming overweight again. So there was a time when he was. Uh, for me, it's actually going back to childhood and being skinny again. So when I'm obsessed with lifting and obviously my muscle dysmorphia is actually what you're talking about. It's based on skinniness. So my thinking is like, let's say if a therapist were to talk to me about this and they would say, well, you know, if you work out, let's say one less day a week, or if you take a day off, let's say if you get sick, if it snows, whatever, right? You're not going to become that, let's say the skinny kid who was, I don't know, let's say a fraction of the size of like the average kid at the time or the right. average in this, right? In this case, the average male. So when you're talking to a therapist and the therapist is trying to challenge these beliefs, that's what's so hard because your anxiety says, no, 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 this guy's fucking you over. Do not listen to him. Like abort, yes. abort, abort. He wants to put you <laughs> in that dangerous place again. So again, going back to the CBT perspective, that's what makes it 
it's so hard a lot of times with clients because it's like you're not only just dealing with the beliefs and the distorted beliefs, you're also dealing with deep fears. So it's like in some ways they also know, like I know, you know, the fear is irrational. Like obviously if you tell me like, hey, you can miss a day of the gym and I'll be like, yeah, of course I can. But when it comes right. up, uh, down to actually actualizing that, it's much harder for me to say that. But yeah, there's this intense fear of going back to that because what comes along with that, right? So now you're not only the skinny kid, but now you're also vulnerable. You're really feeling like at least you're not protected. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the sense that you're not only not attracted to women, but now maybe even they're the ones kind of bullying you too, maybe bad mouthing you, ruining your reputation, et cetera. Now there are probably all these other opportunities more so external that are not available to you. There are potential rewards that you will see other people getting that you won't be, that won't be open to you. So, right, the whole mm -hmm. thing that comes with skinniness to sort of cascade this bad life, right? That with this thing that we could look at and say, okay, this equals a bad life. And then you hear this therapist and you're like, wait, you want me to take what I have and you want me to go backward? No, that doesn't make any sense. A absolutely. No, I think that's really well put. And that's as clinicians, we always want to be aware of because I would never say to a patient, hey, looks don't matter at all. Like that's so it's like, of course they do to some degree. I mean, however, I tell them they don't matter, though, to the degree that you might see them to be. But I it's not an all or nothing thing. There's this sort of spectrum and and having people sort of go into what their story is, is super important because I totally understand that that could be triggered. And that's why a lot of times I ask people, you know, we kind of go through like, what is your like body story, so to speak, you know? And see, for as like my experience, I was a late bloomer. I was a short and skinny kid, but I don't know if being, I'm the baby of the family. Like I'm, I have siblings who are six and five years older than me. I had a lot of older friends. I grew up in a part of Boston, very street smart kind of neighborhood. I had no problem being seen as like young because to me being young was like getting away with a lot of stuff <laughs> and being very mischievous as, as mm -hmm. I was. And I didn't, thankfully, I didn't get, I didn't get any sort of bullying or harassment, you know, for that, because I don't know, like I was very, a very assertive kid and so my story, like it just didn't even to me being like skinny, I was a fast runner. And mm. so the functionality of my body, that was sort of a positive thing. You know, when I go to college and some weight starts, you know, coming on, I'm like, oh, my body's changing. I actually thought, oh, that's great. I don't have to shave like my older friends do. That's like one less thing I have to do, you know, in the day. Yeah. So, but I can completely understand somebody else who could be in the same, that same boat, but their story is different based on all these other variables. And I think it's important for everyone to think to, you know, what is, what is my story? And our story is evolving, you know, in terms of, you know, I'm 51 years old. Like I, you know, my thinking about my health and my physicality is very different than when I was 30, you know, years old or 20 years old. So even in body image and all that is, definitely like that sense of functionality and not, you know, I plan on living to a hundred at least um, is my goal. So I don't want to be, I don't like when my friends are like, oh, my knees, I can't stand. I'm like, oh no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be saying that, you know? So what motivates me to try to be, you know, to keep myself healthy is I, I like going to music shows. I like, you know, doing those kinds of things. So having us all assess that and assess the parts that were difficult, you know, for us so that we can address that so that I, and I would call that out and say, I understand if you're that resistance comes up, 
and it, you said it just perfectly there, that's what's happening. And for people to realize, okay, that's stuff from the past, you know, as opposed to this mindfulness of this is the moment and let's kind of be present in the moment as opposed to recognizing when those voices from the past are dominating us or intrusive. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, being present to the moment. Yeah. Uh, so I used to uh, want to be one of those mirror guys. I would look at the mirror all the time. Even if I was outside, if I'm passing by a car on the street, <laughs> I would look at the car window just to observe my appearance. Like, how do I look yeah. right now? How are people perceiving me? Mm -hmm. And oh boy, and I used to be uh, obese as well, like uh, 300 pounds. I was a big kid mm -hmm. also when I was younger. So I had a lot of like a sort of negative views, you know, uh, from, mm -hmm. from my body, right? But then a little bit later on, this only occurred in my 20s. If I had somebody like you in my life, you know, maybe earlier on, maybe I would have had more of a, I definitely would have had more of a healthier relationship. But uh, yeah, eventually it, it did help me um, to kind of perceive that when I was imagining that people were looking at me and judging me. Like I understood to some degree that they were like, everybody right. does that. You, you, you might look at something and of course judge or critically think, but sure. what's interesting is I realized that, Oh, everybody's kind of overall more thinking about themselves and everything and sort of in relation to themselves. Right. So yeah, sure. They'll judge you, uh, but maybe momentarily, but otherwise it's like a sort of like a, uh, just like maybe for a fading moment, but otherwise it's it's not as critical to them as you might think. Yeah. And then yes. I realized I kind of do the same thing, right? I, I'm mainly thinking about like, oh, how are other people perceiving me? So I thought, okay, everybody else might do that to some degree. There's some universality to that, right? Sure. So that helped me to kind of inch my way out of like being so critical of my looks and just kind of being comfortable around people, like changing the way my body looked. I mean, it had some effect as I was losing weight and all that, but being so obsessed with how other people perceive me, uh, it still it had this undercurrent to my behavior, like uh, mm -hmm. sort of an undercurrent of, this is not going to sound very professional, but like, uh, like an undercurrent of neediness, like sort of needing mm -hmm approval and that kind sure. of come out. Yeah. But then, uh, since you mentioned being in the moment, yeah. When I actually discovered, well, I didn't, dis I wouldn't say I discovered this. this is an old concept, right. But, uh, when I was able to sort of put a label or sort of understand, um, oh, this is what being in the moment feels like, oh, maybe during meditation when you're actually focusing or, uh, and maybe you, you might have a thought, you might not have a thought depends, I suppose the level of focus, but then, right. oh, nothing bothers you. You're totally immersed in what's happening now. Like essentially what happened in the past. I mean, anytime you're thinking about the past, you're doing it now. Anytime you're thinking about the future, you're doing it now. But realistically, this moment is all there is. So if you're really focused on it, is there really any particular issue? It's only when you're right. thinking about these things, right? So I don't know. I found that to be sort of like um, helpful, at least in my case. But um, one thing actually I wanted to ask you earlier. I know it went off on a little bit of a tangent there. The one thing I was very curious is um, does does talking about uh, cognitive distortions, I suppose, in terms of educating the patient help them? Like, for example, if you said like uh, if you define for them, oh, this is what black and white thinking is or this is what mm -hmm. confirmation bias is. Does, does that actually help people or is it just more helpful? Not or is it and 
or mm -hmm. is it more helpful mm -hmm. uh, to uh, sort of establish rapport? And then just from the rapport, they're kind of more buy into certain ideas about how to align with the the goals they tell you about in, in your sessions. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, for, for me, first and foremost is always really establishing that kind of rapport and that connection. And um, I want, you know, my patients to not see me as this sort of um, kind of this someone who's just going to espouse all the kind of therapy language, you know, in, in that way, like I, I'm a real human being in the room, you know, with them and I'm me, like my personality is very much the same, you know, with my patients as I am in, in my real life, my sense of humor and, and the ways that sort of, I think and approach things. Um, so I, and having that kind of connection so that there's a, a sense of trust and a sense of, of safety that I'm not just BSing them, you know, and saying, oh, this is what it is. And so with cognitive therapy, I find in general, there has to be some behavioral therapy piece first that kind of has to happen, I say, to sort of like loosen, because those thoughts are really rigid. They can be right. very, very stuck. And so you kind of need the behavioral stuff first a little bit to then test out the thinking. So for example, because, you know, again, most of the time people have heard from other people, what are you talking about? You look fine. They discount that. They think people are just being nice to them. Um, you know, I if you say, oh, well, this is the distortion of mind reading where you think people are thinking these ill things of you that they don't. Well, I can't guarantee. I don't know what people are thinking. Um, but I, you know, what I usually say to patients is, you know, yeah, sometimes people are going to have negative judgments of you. Some people get have positive judgments and most people don't care. Like most people, as you were saying, kind of a they're in their own heads and they're sort of worried about their own kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but now behaviorally, if let's say I'm working with someone where we um, decrease, let's say the amount of time that they're at the gym and increase some other engagement of connecting in the world. And then they notice, oh my gosh, like I'm really anxious in this situation. Okay, what are skills that we can use to be more present. And that's where the mindfulness comes in, to be more in the moment. Because uh -huh. of course, the irony of, of all of this or the paradox is, let's say if somebody is working out and building a body so that they could be more attractive to women, and then they're in a social situation. And as they're talking to someone, all they can think about is, oh my gosh, how does she, how does she see me? Am I muscular? Am I good looking? And then you're not fluid you're not and people know when you're present or not people can sense that and then what happens is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy let's say you know some interaction doesn't go well but not because the guy is ugly or not in shape but because he wasn't present and the, the woman is feeling an awkwardness there he walks away from it seeing saying see like i'm not attractive it didn't go well because of the way i look and then mm. we start to do the cognitive therapy around, well, wait a minute, let's see. And then we'll role play in the session. And I remember working um, with this guy years ago. Now his BDD was around, um, he thought that his teeth looked ugly. Um, and so part of his, and he would say, you know, part of his work, he would have to attend these like events. And he goes, oh, I hate these events because nobody talks to me. And I just end up in the corner drinking myself to oblivion, he said, because I, people are just disgusted by my teeth. So we would do a role play. Now, this guy was particularly tall. He was a particularly tall guy. 
I said, I want you to pretend like this is the party. And so I'm holding like a cop pretending and he walks in and his posture is slumped. And when he talks, he tends to put his hand over his teeth to sort of camouflage what he thinks are his disgusting teeth. And nothing was objectively you know, nasty about his teeth sure. or anything. His teeth look fine. Um, and I said, well, okay, I want to pause right there because just by your posture, I like either may not want to talk to you, but not because I think of anything in your teeth, but you kind of look like you don't want to be spoken to. Like you, you're giving off a vibe of like, please don't talk to me, you know, or I'm the kind of guy that I would talk to only because I feel like, oh, this guy really needs a friend. Like this guy mm. needs someone to, to, <laughs> to talk to. Um, I said, so you're, it's particularly because you're a tall guy when your posture son, there, that sign of giving off is like, oh, like you're, it's just already oozing out. And he didn't even realize that, you know, he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And I said, I want you to come in and just your posture straight up. And studies show this, that even just having our posture up, it, it literally sends, it has us think about things in a different way because we're oriented to the world slightly differently. And when he first did that, he almost felt like a fraud, he said. He goes, I almost feel like I don't deserve to be standing up straight mm -hmm. because it suggests that I'm like confident or that I deserve to be taught. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. But if you don't feel like you deserved to be liked or talked to, that's what we need to be talking about. Because your mm -hmm. teeth are just the red herring here. Like your teeth are just now the manifestation of that feeling. And now let's go to the cognitive piece of where do those core beliefs come from? And that's where we can kind of loosen up sort of some of that thinking. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Alan, so why I loved your question so much is uh, so oftentimes people think, oh, well, the CBT portion should be enough. Like uh, we had on several guests to talk about, let's say, uh, misinformation, not necessarily. I get it's not exactly a connection here, but misinformation, misinformation, debunking. And so uh, a lot of times the understanding is, well, like there are these sort of uh, formulaic or manualized ways of dealing with it or addressing it. And so for coming from a therapist perspective, that's not actually it. So you have to have the rapport and the relationship. So the problem with the, let's say the CBT portion, if it's just solely that, is that without rapport, there aren't what these what Irv Yalom would call the throw-ins, right? So the throw-ins are these pretty much these genuine, authentic, spontaneous experiences that hopefully, I mean, if they work and if they land, the patient goes, oh, wow, he really wasn't full of shit. Like this whole time that we've been working <laughs> together, he was really being truthful to me, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say exactly what those are because, I mean, these moments really come out of nowhere. And I mean, if even if I were to verbalize some of them, it would be easy for somebody to say like, oh, he was just waiting for that moment, right? But they can sense it when they Come, they could sense that it's not like you know this person was just waiting to say this. So that's the mm -hmm. thing about uh, with CBT is that even if let's say you go through distortions, you do something called the cognitive thought record, you reframe the thoughts. A lot of times the patients will say, "Well, it's therapy speak, right? You're just getting me to." Right. So it's not even they don't even think you're getting me to think realistically. It's more like you're just getting me to think positively. But in order for them to yes. actually buy into it, you need the time and the rapport, and again those little moments, those throw-ins for the person to say like, "Wow, maybe my beliefs were bullshit. Maybe he really was right this whole time." Huh. Yeah, interesting. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So you have to be real in the room, you know, and, and I, and, you know, with, with patients, depending on even how old they are is, you know, if I'm working with someone who's 20, you know, that I always say that I'm not 20 years old now. Yeah. I'm not growing up with this. So I want you to tell me what it's like to be 20 
growing up, being aware of your parents. I know what it was like when I was 20. I know what puberty, I would not want to be going through puberty again. Like that was a very awkward, weird, wacky time when your body's changing in ways that you don't, you know, want it to. But I didn't grow up in that kind of, but, and then there's this culture, there's the community you're in, there's, I mean, all of these variables and, and I'm genuinely, that's the story. I want, you know, that story. And I think the more that people feel that they're not just like a patient, you know, they're not just that there's, there, there's two human beings that, and part of the work is there's an intimacy and a connection in a therapeutic relationship that you're also trying to model to have people not to, or rather to feel more safe in other relationships, you know, that they have, that you're trying to model even within, within that relationship. Yeah. And some part of that is also pointing out your own mistakes too, to be able to say like, yeah, I know that, you know, I'm telling you perfectionism is wrong. And I know there's even a part of me that still kind of goes against that ideal and idea too. But here's where I'm making mistakes to actually show you that no, even I'm internally struggling with it. And even I'm trying to combat it as well. Okay. So Roberto, I, I know it's time to, uh, you got to go soon. So uh, before we wrap up, I just want to ask Alan if he has any final questions for you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yes, uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where can we follow? And even buy the book, yeah. And Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah, so I um, actually have no social media presence. Um, that's sort of in, in the dark. I keep it simple. Um, so if people have any questions, I just tell them, feel free to shoot me an email. It's Roberto underscore Olivardia, O-L-I-V-A-R-D-I-A at hms.harvard.edu. Um, if you Google though my name or on YouTube, you'll come up against a lot of different webinars and podcasts, whether it's about this topic. I do a lot of work in the ADHD space and learning disabilities, OCD. That's how people can sort of hear content and then the Adonis Complex is still on Amazon and, and sold. And I would say, honestly, the book has kind of, is still very relevant, even though it was written 23 years ago with the only, obviously we don't have any, if we were to ever update it, we'd have the chapter on social media. So we don't have that. But honestly, a lot of the other research on steroids and eating disorders, BDD, it still holds in terms of what we still see today. I got you. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. This, this is awesome. Oh, it's a pleasure. This went by so fast. It was I fun. Know, so, such a phenomenal episode. And I have to say, man, I really appreciate all the work that you do. It's really excellent. Thank oh, you thank so you. much. Thanks. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Take okay. Care. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. So everyone, uh, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at C's underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit the bell on YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.